Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name's Jamila Rizvi and I'm joined by my co-host Astrid Edwards. And today we're talking about pain. We are recording this episode during a very difficult week in Australian politics. By the time that you hear this, it will have been a couple of weeks since Brittany Higgins, young woman staffer to the federal coalition government, came forward and said that she had been raped by a man who also worked for the government inside of Parliament House. Since that time, multiple other women staffers, past and present, have come forward and alleged sexual assault by the same man. A culture of cover-up, of political expediency, and of putting your own public standing ahead of the needs and rights of a victim has emerged. And today Astrid and I have decided that we want to focus today's episode on the pain, the trauma and the truth of survivors. Astrid, this is an area of writing where we've seen a lot of books over the last few years. Increasingly, survivors are writing their own books and books are being written about survivors of sexual assault in a way that I don't think happened 10 years, 20 years ago. It didn't jam. I mean, there are some very, very rare examples, but the idea that it was possible to not only write, but then also publish and share with the world a crime that had been committed against you. And unfortunately, our society places shame upon the person who has experienced a crime as opposed to the person who does the crime really is becoming more common now. And that that in itself is full of pain because there shouldn't be so many stories like this. But the fact that there is increasingly more space to share those stories is a good thing. And I feel really quite awkward using the word good in this episode at all, but it is progress and so much more needs to be done and is being done. We are recording this on Saturday and yesterday, Friday, 26th of February, was a really bad day for Australia as a nation. I think all of that's true and I think something else that's worth reflecting on is access to the publishing industry because historically the publishing industry has only published the works of generally white men with money and who are extremely well educated. And as a result, the stories that the rest of us can have access to and get our hands on show a very narrow worldview. And I think what you say is absolutely true, that the strength of survivors to come forward and tell their story in long form is incredible. The fact that there is a and again, an awkward word to use, but a market for those stories that we have a community who want to hear these stories and want to bear witness to what has happened to these women and children, mostly, 
is awesome and I think a big change, a really big change, but also that the publishing industry will publish the stories in the first place, that the publishing industry deems these stories worth telling, I think represents a really significant shift. And while, of course, we have a very long way to go, we want to reach a point as a society where these stories don't need to be told because they don't happen anymore. Yeah, that's where we want to get to. But until we get there, these stories should be in public. And it's not just that the the people who choose to tell their own stories now have people who will read them and feel permitted and safe enough and empowered by doing so, empowered by telling their stories in public. It's also that the publishing houses themselves not only think that there is a market, and again, I I agree, awkward word, but there are editors who can edit these works with sensitivity and compassion. There are publishers who can market, God, that word keeps coming up, these books without looking like you're selling someone's story. It does signify change in the publishing industry and I am well known for saying that the publishing industry is whitewashed and horrible despite the fact that I love reading its products but this is an area that didn't happen very much before or it happened when someone was anonymous and therefore a book would come out as anonymous and maybe make waves but then also maybe be forgotten or pushed aside because there was no one in public to defend it. This is a podcast about books, Astrid, but I think more than that, it is a podcast about stories and stories aren't always told in the form of a book. And I think what we've seen in the past two weeks is astronomical strength from individuals who have told their stories publicly, regardless of the consequences. And we know from our conversation with Louise Milligan just a week ago that survivors who seek to tell their stories and seek justice through the courts in Australia rarely feel satisfied at the end of that process. And indeed, that process can work to enhance and reinforce trauma and even create new trauma. They know what they're in for. They know how the media is going to treat them. They know how the police, how the courts might treat them. And yet they're saying something anyway in the hope that that means there's not another woman like them. For those of you who are listening, today we are going to talk about the books that we originally had planned to discuss with you today. But in our recommendations section, we are going to exclusively recommend books by survivors and books published by journalists with the permission of survivors because they have the most important stories that we should all be reading. All right, Jamila, today I would like to bring you Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Now, Hamnet is actually a book that I briefly recommended in a previous season, but it deserves more discussion. It deserves more thought. And in case no one read it last time I recommended it, I am bringing it back because this book is quite beautiful. Hit us with a synopsis. Hamnet is a name of an 11-year-old boy. Now, Hamnet, as we all know, sounds very similar to Hamlet, Shakespeare's most famous work. So in real life, William Shakespeare had a son called Hamnet. Hamnet died when he was a young teenager. This book by Maggie O'Farrell takes a look at Shakespeare's family and his wife, his daughter, and his son and considers the home life that shaped 
William Shakespeare. So William Shakespeare is present, but he is never named in this narrative. Instead, we constantly follow Agnes, his wife, and Judith and Hamnet, his children. And I think that's really important because Shakespeare is a name that we aren't going to forget anytime soon. But Shakespeare came from a family. Shakespeare came from a long-term relationship that suffered the pain of one of their children dying very young. And the question throughout this is how can a relationship survive? How can a sibling survive without their twin? How can a father be a good father? And how does the grief and the confusion and the anger change a person? So that's why I'm bringing back Jam because I feel like I didn't do it justice last time and I like the idea of re-examining a historical figure from the point of view of the women and children in that person's life. One of the things I liked about Hamnet is that William Shakespeare is just like a clever young man. He's certainly not the central character. He's not held up as, you know, a genius. There's no kind of cute allusions to the fact he's going to go on and write all these plays later on. Instead, this is a moving story about the way loss forces a couple to recalibrate their relationship. Yeah, and there's no sugarcoating here. I mean, it takes a while and they are separated. And, you know, this was 400 years ago, so there was no phones or internet or swift travel. They live in Stratford-upon-Avon and... William Shakespeare, who is a clever young man trying to make his way in the play circuit in London, this is before he's famous, goes and spends a lot of time in London. So the family is separate. They aren't able to swiftly communicate. Agnes is at home and she is exposed to William's brothers, William's parents, and she has to represent their little part of the family, which is hard. I won't give you spoilers, but this is a woman who is doing a lot. And this is a woman who at that time, her mother was questioned. Her mother was not respected because she was a healer and a herbalist. And that, and I use this word advisedly, that taint comes down to Agnes. And so Agnes, even though her mother has passed away, is always fighting society's expectations whilst she's trying to be a good mother, trying to be a good wife, trying to be a good daughter-in-law. And all the while, you know, William is doing what he does to become William Shakespeare, but he is off in London. And I remember as I read this, every time I turn the page, I'm like, this is a story that could be written now, but it also has particular resonance given that it's famous Shakespeare, whatever. It's a beautiful town that, you know, is on the tourist circuit these days. And we all remember the guy and we don't remember the people and the family who made him who he was. Absolutely. I don't think there is anyone who becomes a great influencer on the world through their work without people around them who make it possible for them. And in the case of Agnes, she is, there's no other word for it, she's constrained by the demands of motherhood. She has very limited opportunities because of the time in which she's alive. And you certainly get the sense through this book that she has the potential to be extraordinary had she been born 400 years later. Um, So one of the things I really liked about Hamnet was it set up 
it's, it's sort of pushed back against that idea of people being born a genius, that you were born to do great things and that was always your path. But instead, you are born into a set of circumstances with abilities and interests. And luck shapes a lot of it. Luck, but also William Shakespeare wasn't born particularly wealthy, particularly famous. You know, his family was very comfortable, but they were in no way any kind of movers and shakers in London. And yet, because he was obviously gifted, he got to use the privilege of being male and go off and do his best in London. She wasn't allowed to go to London because of her gender. Now, this is just one way that we can look at historical privilege, but it infuriates me, Jam. I don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm just vaguely infuriated by everything right now. (laughs) Misogyny is rubbish, both historical and present. That is our summation on this book. And one of the other reflections I wanted to make on Hamnet, though, Astrid, is that, you know, it explores the loss of of a child, which... I think for certainly for parents is the most extraordinarily awful thing you can ever imagine. And I feel like it does it well. It is well executed because there are books I have read by other authors less talented than Maggie O'Farrell where it doesn't feel real enough, where the emotions feel trite, where it feels like it's sort of a run of cliches around the loss of a child Whereas this hit home to me, despite the time gap of when it was was happening. And one of the things I found when I was doing a bit of reading about Maggie O'Farrell and about Hamnet was that she wanted to write this book for some time, but she wouldn't write it until her own son was 11 because she felt superstitious about it. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Mm, she needed her own son to live beyond the age of 11 before she could write it. Yeah. Wow. That gave me shivers, Jam. Another thing that struck me and I guess I read this book in 2020 and we all know what happened in 2020 there was plague in Elizabeth I's London and people worry about the plague that people worry that their children their husbands their wives their family members their friends will die of the plague and without ruining anything because we've told you that Hamnet dies there is this extraordinary part where William Shakespeare gets a letter and he is in London and it's inferred that someone in his family is very, very ill and his journey out of plague-ridden London to try to get home on horseback and how long it took and not knowing if the person was still alive because, of course, there was no communication that was going faster than him. It's a reminder about what people have been experiencing now in the age of COVID. I mean, you know, we have instant communication if we want but we can't get to the people that we love and that has been a problem forever astrid we aren't dealing with easy topics in this episode about pain i'd like to introduce the prophets by robert jones jr which i think is one of the most compelling books that i've read in the last few months at least and we do a lot of reading for this podcast we do a lot of reading now that is a big claim one of the most compelling books that you've read in the last couple of months i admit i haven't read this yet but i also want to be very honest this is one that i haven't wanted to rush i've actually been waiting for a time when i can give this the justice that i think it's going to deserve i don't want to rush this one so no spoilers but also tell me jam What have I missed so far? 
Let me tell you about the plot. The Prophets is the story of Samuel and Isaiah, who are two enslaved black boys. They live on a plantation in the south of America and they've grown up together very close. They've grown up together as more than best friends to the point that eventually as adults they become lovers. And there are love stories and then there are love stories and this is a beautiful one. (laughs) It is a bond of joy and lightness and passion that is sort of set amidst the brutality of their everyday. I mean, these two men are slaves. Their day-to-day experiences are awful. You know, I don't believe a life is ever not worth living, but it gets close. It gets close. And they're happy because they love one another. But of course, We're talking about the love of two men at a time when the love of two men was not accepted by broader society. So for those listening to us, I am in the same room as Jamila and her body language has changed. This book has made an impact on you. It really has. And I'm struggling with the words here because I'm not sure how to go further without giving away the plot. And I refuse to because you haven't read it and many of our listeners won't have read it. And I want you to, I want you to follow this love story. And I'm sure you can tell by my body language and the way I'm struggling. It's not a love story that has a rosy ending. (laughs) There's darkness ahead and there's pain ahead in this book, but it is pain that gives you that sense of the power of love and love being worth fighting for and the book doesn't make the pain that these men live through the pain of enslavement it doesn't linger on it unnecessarily you know it's very much there it's very present it is an integral part of the story and yet the most important part of the story remains the love story it remains the romance between these two beautiful Men, And I think from a writing perspective, that's very difficult to do because it doesn't become a book about gay rights. It doesn't become a book about being black. It doesn't become a book about slavery. Primarily, it's a book about a love story. And I think being able to maintain that is quite a achievement in a book about black queer love, right? Which is, you know, would be radical today, let alone given the time in which this novel is set. So I've admitted that I haven't read this book, but I have been wanting to give it space. And one of the reasons that I am so excited to read this is this is the debut work of Robert Jones Jr. But Robert Jones Jr. has a really active online presence and has had so for a while. He tweets and Instagrams and whatever under the name Son of Baldwin. And that is a direct reference to James Baldwin, who was the father of black writing in 20th century America and so many other contemporary writers including Cole Brown who we've interviewed previously credit James Baldwin as opening the way for them to be able to do and think what they do and think now so it fascinates me that this is his debut and he has already kind of placed himself in that contemporary canon but also has been paying homage to one of the greats already for so long. And I feel like maybe this book goes straight into that long line of writing that has, that descends from 
James Baldwin's work in the mid and late 20th century. I think that is correct. When I did a little bit of reading about Jones, yes, he's been blogging. And as soon as I use the word blogging, it feels like I'm dating myself, but blogging under the name Son of Baldwin for some time now. And apparently the name was inspired not just by Baldwin, but Baldwin's end of life prayer, which was that one day his work would be recovered among, and I'm quoting here, the wreckage and the rumble of the world left behind, which, I mean, even that sentence tells you (laughs) what a way with words Baldwin had. But this sort of son of Baldwin moniker has grown into something bigger. So yes, that's where Jones blogs and tweets and as you say, but on Facebook, it's become like a closed community. There's a Facebook group called Son of Baldwin. And on that page, there are more than 150,000 followers. And it's become a place of discussion about gender, sexuality, race, disability, and it touches on all of these intersectionalities and issues that often mainstream media outlets didn't used to touch. Increasingly, they do now. But I think Son of Baldwin was kind of a, a forerunner to that, so to speak. You know, it's interesting the way our stories are told in public. And so often it's the artists who come first and the artists who are writing years, decades, gosh, in some, in some ways centuries before kind of polite society, which I include journalists in as much as I love journalists, catch up. And before it can go on the front page of a newspaper, people have had to be telling their stories through fiction and personal memoir and creative nonfiction before we as a society can get there. So Robert Jones said of this work when he was asked about who it's for, who the audience is, he said, and I'm quoting here, I wrote it for the black queer person in modern times who has also been told, like I've been told, by a white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal society that I have no right to be here, that my very identity was the result of some trauma or failure rather than nature. I also wanted to pay homage to those who were erased. I can't think of a better reason to write a book. As promised in the introduction to this episode, Astrid and I would like to recommend a series of books rather than just one each. As we mentioned, books about sexual abuse, sexual harassment, sexual assault have become more accepted in the publishing world. These stories of survivors are being published and we owe it to those survivors and those who have allowed others to tell their stories to read those books. So here are some of those that have most impacted Astrid and myself. I'd like to start with Maya Angelou's first autobiography, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Angelou went on to write seven autobiographies, but her first details her rape as a child and has influenced decades of writers and readers and people seeking to change our world. Know My Name by Chanel Miller has been lauded across the world and is a New York Times bestseller. Chanel Miller was first known to the world as Emily Doe, where she stunned millions with a letter that she wrote to Brock Turner, the man who assaulted her, who was sentenced to just six months in jail. Eggshell Skull, a memoir about standing up 
Speaking Out and Fighting Back by Brie Lee. Brie Lee is an Australian writer who not only told her story, but since publishing Eggshell Skull has been advocating for change to our legal system. Not That Bad, Dispatches from Rape Culture, edited by Roxanne Gay, is a revealing anthology put together by best-selling author Roxanne. It collects original and previously published pieces that address what it means to live in a world where women have to measure the harassment, violence and aggression they face and where they are routinely second-guessed, gaslit, denigrated, belittled and bullied for speaking out. She said, Breaking the Sexual Harassment Story That Helped Ignite a Movement by Jody Cantor and Megan Tui. Cantor and Tui won the Pulitzer Prize for journalism for their reporting on Harvey Weinstein and this is the book they wrote that revealed more and outlined how they did the reporting they did. Catch and Kill by Ronan Farrow is a dramatic account of violence and espionage. Ronan Farrow, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, exposes serial abusers and a cabal of powerful interests hell-bent on covering up the truth at any cost. Betrayal, the crisis in the Catholic Church, sometimes also known as Spotlight. This was published by the investigative staff of the Boston Globe about their uncovering of cover-ups, hush money and history of secret sexual abuse in the Catholic Church in the United States. I Choose Eleanor by Lucia Osborne Crowley. Age 15 and on track to be an Olympic gymnast, Lucia was violently raped in Sydney on a night out, sparking a series of events that left her devastatingly ill for a decade of her life. Cardinal, The Rise and Fall of George Pell by Louise Milligan, the book that made national and international news, again, relating to the Catholic Church and the cover-up of sexual abuse in one of the world's oldest institutions. And No Matter Our Wreckage by Gemma Carey. When Gemma was 12 years old, a man twice her age sneaked into her bedroom on a weekly basis to sexually assault her. This is a memoir of grooming, of betrayal, of trauma and of love. These stories are so important. And I think Gemma and I are both close to tears, but please support these stories and the people who choose to tell them. Anonymous was a woman is made possible by the support of Hachette Australia. We thank them for their ongoing generosity in allowing us to talk about whatever we want to every week. Thank you to Future Women and Bad Producer Productions, without whom these episodes would not be possible. If you would like to hear more Anonymous Was a Woman, then please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave a rating and a review, but most importantly, read those books. <laughs>